Heavenly Father, I thank you again for this day that you have made. Thank you for the privilege that we had yesterday of celebrating the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ, and thank you for the opportunity that we have today to continue that worship. Lord, we pray that as we study your word together, Lord, that you would open our hearts, that you would open my mouth, and Lord, that we would leave here with a clearer picture of what the love of the Incarnation looked like, and Lord, that that love would fill us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. All right, so Philippians chapter 2, now as you're turning... I'm going to address kind of the elephant in the room, I suppose, at least for those of you who are familiar with Philippians chapter 2. And that is that you'll know that's not a typical Christmas text. Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. It's not a gospel where we find wise men or shepherds or a woman being great with child. And yet, last week, Tim promised that today would be a Christmas message. So what gives? Well, as many of you probably know, the early church did not celebrate the holiday we know as Christmas. Doesn't mean they didn't recognize the birth of Jesus, they just didn't have the holiday Christmas. We don't see the first recorded celebration of Christmas until the year 336, during the reign of the Emperor Constantine. So, if we assume that Jesus was born in year zero... That's 336 years without a Christmas celebration. That means that all the books of the New Testament were written before Christmas was an official church holiday. Know what you're thinking? Mr. Scrooge up here, right? You didn't come to listen to the Grinch this morning. (laughs) Thanks for bursting my bubble, Alan. Does that mean that because the early church didn't celebrate Christmas, we shouldn't do it either? That's not what I'm saying. But when thinking about this, it raised a thought in my head of how the early Christians viewed the incarnation of Jesus or the birth of Jesus, of Jesus entering this world. Our Christmas celebration today is, is wonderful, and we should absolutely praise and thank God for the birth of his son. I mean, that's what we saw Anna and Simeon do last week in Tim's sermon. Because we celebrate it in the way we do with its history and and its trappings and traditions, we can sometimes restrict the meaning of Christmas or the incarnation of Jesus. To say it another way, when we think of the incarnation of Jesus, we typically think of Christmas, and our mind goes to the Christmas story, or perhaps the passages of the Old Testament that prophesy the birth of a king and a savior. And that's great, and it should But sometimes, when we do that, we have a tendency to make Christmas about us. How he saves us. How he loves us. And that is true because he did come to save us and he does come to love us. But, what would it look like that if we approached Christmas in the same way that Jesus approached Christmas? And that is selflessly. When he came to be born of a virgin. As we're going to learn today, he did it selflessly. And so that's what I would say the writers of the New Testament saw when they looked back at the incarnation of Jesus. 
The passage that we are studying this morning in Philippians is about the incarnation. It's about Christmas. And it shows how the incarnation changed the lives of the early Christians and how it can change our lives today. So, let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to be looking at Philippians 2, 1 through 11. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, as we mentioned earlier, the scripture that we just read is from a letter that Paul wrote to the relatively new church in Philippi. We could turn back in our Bibles a couple of pages to Acts chapter 16 and read about the birth of this church when Paul was visiting that city. Philippians was probably written about 10 years after Paul visited and started the church in Philippi. It's a wonderful book that includes a lot of encouragement and exhortation. And zooming in specifically on chapter 2, which we just read, we see that the main theme is self-sacrificial, others-centered love. And Paul presents the incarnation of Jesus as the basis for this kind of love and the power for this kind of love. This passage, verses 1 through 11, can be separated into three parts. In part 1... Verse 1 and 2, Paul lays out his goal for the church. Part 2 is verses 3 through 8, and there Paul instructs us of how to accomplish that goal. And then finally, part 3, verses 9 through 11, is the result of accomplishing that goal. So let's look at those together. Paul clearly states his goal for the church in verse 2. He says that he would like them to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, I have yet to see a Honda that can accommodate the entire church. I hear a few laughs. Thank you. For those of you who don't know, Honda makes accords. It says accord. I know, bad bad dad joke, but I couldn't resist. (laughs) Anyway, moving on. Paul wants the entire church to exist in the way that the Trinity exists. See, the Trinity has three persons, Father, Spirit, and Son. Paul explicitly references Christ, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in verse 1. And he's going to implicitly reference the Father later on in this passage. 
But as the Trinity, these three persons are different and yet one. They delight in each other in perfect love and are completely unified. How do they do it? Well, we're about to find out because thankfully, Jesus, the second member of that Trinity, came to earth to show us how, to teach us how, and to ultimately empower us how. So in verses 1 and 2, Paul is actually reiterating the prayer that Jesus had for all future Christians that we can read back in John chapter 17. In verses 20 and 21 of that chapter, Jesus prays. He says, I do not ask for my disciples only, but also for all who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. That's exactly Paul's desire here, just phrased in a different way. The same mind, the same love, a full accord and of one mind, just as God exists in three persons, Father, Spirit, Son, and is yet one. So having stated this goal, starting in verse 3, Paul tells us how to have this kind of love. So notice that Paul gives three directives, starting in verse 3. He says, the first one is, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Secondly, in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. And then three, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. These directives are then directly connected to Christ in verses 5 through 8. And the reason that they are connected is that Paul tells us what we are to do in verses 3 through 4, but then he tells us how in verses 5 through 8. And that how is all about Jesus. When I first read this passage, I thought that Paul was presenting Jesus as really the ultimate example of how we're to love as Christians. And to be fair, Jesus is the ultimate example. But that's not all Paul is saying. See, for many of us, that's an easy way to read this passage as a moralistic directive to just go out there and be like Jesus. Try harder. Do better. Here's the steps. A, B, C. Follow them and you'll be fine. The only problem with that interpretation is verse 5. If we look at verse 5 again, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The kind of mindset regarding the love that Paul is talking about that we see displayed in Jesus is only ours in Christ Jesus. Only when we are living in fellowship with him as a part of the vine, as John 15 talks about, and when we are in complete dependence, can we do what this passage instructs. And then, when Paul goes on to tell us about this mindset of Christ, his purpose is not just to present Jesus as the example, but also to show how Jesus, as the example, created the way for us to live in this mindset, how this mindset can become ours in Christ. You know, Jesus didn't do what he did on this earth just to be an example so we could be like him. He did it, first of all, to glorify God and to accomplish God's will. But by being obedient to God the Father, the Father used the obedience of the Son 
to provide for us a way of salvation, an ability to walk in what the Bible calls newness of life, which means we don't have to follow our selfish, sinful desires. And also through that obedience, God the Father provided the perfect example in Christ the Son that demonstrates what absolute obedience, love, and fellowship with the Spirit looks like. So we're going to talk about these three directives that Paul gives. But please don't get the impression that this passage is just telling you to be like Jesus. Because you can't. Right? You need Jesus to be like Jesus. So, that being said, how does the incarnation of Jesus show us how to love like the Trinity loves? Well, let's take a closer look at the first directive Paul gives us in verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Right? That's the what. Pretty straightforward. Don't be selfish or conceited, right? (laughs) Right, easier said than done. So Paul provides the how if you jump down to verse 6. He says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, when I read that, I thought of back when I was in high school. I took Latin, Latin as my foreign language. Three semesters of it. (laughs) And I don't know if they still offer Latin, but it's probably a good thing because I don't remember anything of that. At least Latin, the language. So there's one thing, though, I do remember of that class, and that is a book that we had to read on Greek and Roman mythology. You know, the stories of the Greeks and the Roman gods that, that they believed in. And I remember that quite often in those stories, those gods would visit the earth. And when they did, they would use their, their godness, right? Their, their privilege and powers as being more than human for often very hedonistic endeavors or to get a leg up on the other gods. In other words, when they came to visit earth, they were quite often very selfish and conceited. For example, Zeus, you know, the head god, so to speak, once turned into a swan so that he could impregnate a woman. Now, that's not only the PG version of that story, but it's one of the milder stories that you read in Greek and Roman mythology. Right? Very, very selfish and conceited. That's not what Jesus did even though he would have every right when he came to this earth to demand that humans recognize him for the God that he is. I mean, in Colossians chapter 1, it tells us that by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, and that he is actively holding all things together. So when Jesus came into this world that he created, and holds together, he could have come in all of his glory. And it would not have been selfish ambition or conceit on his part. But he set aside his privilege and glory as God when he was incarnated and came as a helpless baby. Why? Because he loved. He loved God the Father first and foremost, but he also loved us. So if Jesus who again had every right and ability to maintain his equality with God, set it aside. May we set aside our selfish ambitions and conceit. What does that look like for a church to do? I actually had a bit of a hard time thinking of that when preparing the sermon. I mean, the best answers I came up with at first were, 
Well, let's set aside our preference for music or worship styles. But that's not a huge issue here. Then I thought of some of the nastiness I've seen caused from selfish ambition and conceit with church politics. And again, praise the Lord, that's not a huge issue here. So, finally, I did what I should have done sooner, and that is pray about it. (laughs) And the Lord answered. And here's what I believe this means for the church, which is deeper than just music or church politics. See, when we walk through those doors downstairs or really interact in any way with the church body, we're not necessarily selfishly thinking, what can I get out of this? How can I use this person to get what I want? But we are often thinking, how am I being perceived by others? Am I cultivating that certain image that I want people to see? It's why we care so much about how our children behave here. Or we try to appear not to care so as not to give the impression that we do care. It's why we're too afraid to speak up in small groups because we're not sure how our comment's going to be received or what people are going to think of us. It's why we answer the common question of how you been with fine, God's good, instead of, man, life's been hard lately. It's why we don't confess our sins to one another It's why we are so resistant to being loved on by others. Or, to get really real with you all, it's why sometimes I'm more concerned with how well you think I preach than on how beneficial the sermon is. See, on the surface, it may seem like we care about others, but so often it can only, it's, it's just a means to our selfish and conceited end. What Paul is saying is that when Jesus came to earth, he wasn't concerned with being recognized as God. He was concerned about obeying the Father, and he was concerned about the people he came to save, us. This isn't something we naturally do, but it is ours in Christ, and he can give us that type of love that is selfless. So, The love of the incarnation is selfless, thinking of ourselves less, but it's also others more, right? Thinking of others more. I know that's not really a roll-off-the-tongue type phrase, right? Selfless, others more, but but that's what he says here. Paul, in verse 3, says to, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And what does he base that on? Verse 7, but Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, at first glance, it may appear that when Paul was talking about taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, which is about Christmas, right? It's what Jesus did. It may be that Paul is saying that by becoming human, Jesus was giving up or emptying himself of his divinity. But we know Orthodox doctrine regarding the person of Jesus when on earth was that he was fully God and fully man. And that has been the case throughout the history of the church. So what does Paul mean by Jesus emptying himself? Well, Wayne Grudem, who is a uh, great theologian, put it like this. He says that 
Jesus did not give up any of his deity when he became a man, but he did take on humanity that was not his before. And it was this act of taking on humanity that was incredibly emptying. There's a couple useful ways of of thinking about this, to to wrap our minds around this. In verse 7, it says that Jesus took the form of a servant. Your Bible might have a footnote there that references, or that, that says that the literal translation of that word, doulos in Greek, is slave. That, that's what that word referred to when the New Testament was written. Slaves. So when Jesus took the form of a human, it was as if he was becoming a slave. Now we don't really have that master-slave relationship in our society today. But think back to the Old South. Think of a plan, if, if a plantation owner were to voluntarily give up his residence and glory in his huge mansion and was somehow able to take a body of a slave. He was still the plantation owner. Nothing changed that fact. But by also taking on the body of a slave, he was now subjecting himself to the grinding work, the bitter oppression, and the often painful existence that come that came with being a slave. That's what Jesus did when he took on humanity. He didn't give up his divinity, but he did take on humanity, which was incredibly uh, beneath him. Now, obviously, that metaphor of the master-slave of the Old South falls apart, like all metaphors, because Jesus is nothing like a cruel slave master. But it's still useful to consider what Jesus was subjecting himself to when he took on human flesh and was born as a baby. Think of this another way. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, as we know, he was born as a baby. The Seiferts recently had a baby boy. Guess what they're doing right now, besides not sleeping? They're feeding him. They're bathing him. They're changing his diapers. Jesus had to have all that happen to him as well. Here is the creator of the universe relying on a human being that he created to feed him, clean him, change his diapers. Why would he do that? Because he loved. See, by coming as a servant, as a slave, as a human being, he was saying, I'm counting others as more significant than myself. So what do you need to empty yourself of in order to have the humility that counts others more significant than yourself? Perhaps it's a bitterness that thinks the other person doesn't deserve it. You say, I can't think of her as more significant than me because she's not. I mean, I do 10 times the work she does. I put in 20 times the effort. And besides, if she would just do X, Y, and Z, her problems would be gone. She's needlessly making her life harder for herself. Or maybe you need to empty yourself of the pride that thinks that your needs are more significant than others. Because in your situation, it is more dire. You've got more health problems, or have experienced more loss, or have gone through more pain, or have a greater magnitude of work stress, or you fill in the blank. Or perhaps you need to empty yourself of the fear that worries that if you do end up counting others as more significant than yourself, then your needs won't be met. 
That's not the mindset that Jesus had. Jesus, who was the only one who could legitimately claim he was better than all of us and that we don't deserve it, he didn't do that. He came as a human, a baby, a slave. So, the incarnated love of Jesus is selfless, it's others more, and finally, it's others exalting. Notice the progression. Starting with the self, selfless, then focusing on others more, and then finally, we're lifting others up, others exalting. Verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So, we're not just counting them more significant, but we're elevating their interests. The how and the connection to Jesus is in verse 8. He says, Being found in human form, he, that's Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, you may be asking, how are these two connected? How does obedience lead to being concerned about the interest of others? Well, in the case of Jesus, think back to the Mount of Olives before Jesus' crucifixion, where he knew what was coming. He knew that he was going to die. What did he pray? He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus didn't want to endure the cross. It's not something that he was looking forward to. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was concerned first and foremost with the Father's interests and not his own. And he knew that the Father was concerned with the salvation of the world. Because it says that God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The love that Jesus had for the Father and for the world compelled him to elevate their interests, even though it went against his self-interest. It was others exalting. So we've noted the progression, selfless, others more, and now others exalting. And I would posit that each step in that progression becomes harder. Harder to live out. Why do I say that? Well, let me ask you something. If I were to ask you what the most significant need in five other families or members of this church were, would you be able to tell me? Because you are concerned with their interests. What about three or one? How much time do you spend praying for your other brothers and sisters? I know those questions are convicting to me. See, this is hard to elevate others' interests. It's hard because this obedience requires us to to look at others and not ourselves. And, I mean, you've got three little balls of energy that you're trying to keep alive. You've got a 60-hour-a-week job, and that's a good week. You've got health problems. Your family members have health problems. And did I mention all the drama and the conflict that are in your relationships that we have to manage? So how can we possibly make time to elevate and be concerned about the interest of others? Well, it does require sacrifice and emptying. But here's the thing. If we're all doing this together, that is, you're looking out for my interest, I'm looking out for your interest, you're looking out for her interest, and she's looking out for yours, then 
our needs will be met. And in a way that is profoundly more beneficial than us trying to meet our needs on our own. When we're concerned about others, the parenting and career wisdom from the older members can be passed to the younger, and the energy and joy of the younger members can be passed to the older. And now you have five people praying and helping with the problem instead of just yourself. It can be amazing when we all do this together. And that's what leads to the final result, which we see in verse 9. See, Jesus was selfless, others-focused, and others-exalting, and the result then was exaltation. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, as one member of the Trinity, perfectly loved the other, the Father. As a result, the Father lifted up Jesus and exalted him to complete glory. That is, as Jesus exalted the Father, the Father exalted Jesus. See, when I'm sacrificing for you and you're sacrificing for me, when I'm emptying myself for you and you're emptying yourself for me, when I'm looking to your interest and you're looking for mine, the result is glorification. Everybody is lifted up. I'm lifting you up and you're lifting me up, similar to just how the Father and the Son lifted each other up. We are all lifted up and the world will take notice. Remember back to that prayer from Jesus that we read earlier that was found in John, where Jesus prayed that his future followers would be one as he and the Father are one? Well, that was verses 20 and 21. Look at what Jesus says next in verses 22 and 23. He says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Jesus is saying that when we are all living like this, we are living in a glory that will represent that of God and point directly to him. See, when we live like this, it's our best witness for God as a church because we show who God is and what his love is like. And people want that, especially in our day when everything is about me. Everyone is so consumed looking out for themselves and their own interests that when they find a community that genuinely cares for and loves each other, it's one, that that is one big family. It's very attractive. And interestingly, that's how Jesus said the world would know that the Father sent him to the world and loved us. Here, he says, it's not knowing our testimony inside and out. It's not being able to recite the Apostles' Creed or know the five points of Calvinism. But it's by our love. So as we close today, I love the way this passage ends. It's because it reminds us that the first time that Jesus came, he came as a baby in human flesh who emptied himself and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But the Christmas story is incomplete if we stop there because 
he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. And because he was born in the likeness of men, and because he was obedient to God up until death, the Father exalted him. And though he was not recognized as God the first time he came, make no mistake, the next time he comes, he will be. Because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when he comes again, he will be visiting this earth in his power and his glory. And every knee will bow in worship and every tongue will acknowledge that he is God and King. The only question is, at that point, will you be recognizing him as God your Savior or as God your judge? Because Jesus was selfless, others focused, and others exalting, he made a way so that he can be our Savior. But it requires us to recognize him as Savior and Lord. So today and this week, as you're living in the afterglow of the Christmas celebrations, or perhaps you've got a couple more relatives or friends to see, but when you ponder Jesus coming to this world as a human, think of the selfless, others more, and others exalting love that Jesus displayed. And pray that that mindset would be yours in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you again and thank you for the word that you have provided in the book of Philippians. Lord, that when the early Christians looked back at the incarnation of Jesus, they saw the love that Jesus displayed. A love that completely changed their lives in providing a way for salvation for us, but Lord, also a love that points directly to you and the Trinity and of how the church should be. Lord, we pray that that love would be ours in Christ. We recognize that it's not something that we can do on our own because our hearts are full of selfishness and conceit. Our hearts are full and, and are, are full of, of ourselves. Lord, please move us out of the way so that we could think of others. And as we move from thinking of ourselves less to others more, that we would elevate each other's interests and that as we do it, we would point directly to the glory that is the Trinity. Thank you for Jesus, for the incarnation of him, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.